Well, we're going to read the Bible together now. So if you've got a Bible, please flick it open. Our first reading is in Romans. Uh, it's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Romans 1, 1 to 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now flick over, the second reading is still in Romans. Uh, It's Romans chapter 8, 12 to 17. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, I've made a mess of this microphone, so please don't let it distract you. And now I've commented it will, but that's okay. Um, just to start, a little something about me. If, if you've known me any amount of time, you'll already know this, but I love dinosaurs. Um, nearly every young boy grows up loving dinosaurs. Uh, they're these near mythical monsters of the past. Um, reality and fantasy almost seems to blur together. Uh, these harmless monsters from an ancient time so different from our own, now made harmless by that distance. Most boys grow out of dinosaurs. I did not. Now, about six months ago, I promise this is going somewhere. About six months ago, a new paper was published that kind of set paleo nerds into a little bit of a flutter. A few media outlets reported on it. Cullen and others wrote this paper, Theropod Dinosaurs, Facial Reconstruction and the Importance of Soft Tissue in Paleobiology. Ooh. And in it, they argued that large dinosaurs, carnivorous ones like the famous T-Rex, they didn't look like the Jurassic Park classic with menacing teeth hanging out of their mouth desperate to eat you, Uh, but they almost certainly had lips covering those teeth. Um, They didn't look like that scary one on your right, they kind of looked more like that one on the left. The argument had looked at the damage and wear on dinosaur teeth compared to crocodiles and lizards, tooth size compared to skulls, jaw morphology, beautiful diagrams, short, free-to-access paper. You can see it yourself. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, stop this talk. Like, let's look at this, right? No, no, I'm sure you're thinking, so what? 
Who cares? What does that mean? What does it matter? Sure, it may well be true, T-Rex may have had lips, but it has no impact on my daily life, does it? And I think that's how we sometimes think about the Trinity. Sure, it's true, it's there under the surface of the Apostles' Creed that's been affirmed by Christians for centuries. It's in our church's doctrinal statement on the church website that I'm sure we have all read and studied very carefully. But does it really matter? Does it impact how I think and feel and act day to day? Isn't it just a truth for academic theologians to argue about at councils and in journal articles that no one's really going to read? Something for the super-Christians to bicker about and pick one another apart and correct each other while the rest of us just get on with following Jesus. Well, I want to read from, for you from the start of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, it's a statement that has been affirmed by Christians since the 4th century and it begins like this. Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. That is, uh, the faith shared by all true believers and churches across all time. Which faith, unless one do keep holy and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. If one does not believe the Trinity, they claim that person shall without doubt perish everlastingly. I wonder what you think as you hear that. Does that sound too harsh, perhaps excessive? Sure, the, the Trinity is important, but, but is it that important? Over these next three weeks, we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive into God Himself. Uh, we're going to start to untangle what He has revealed of who He is and see the glory and beauty of His triune nature. My hope is that as we do this, we're not just going to see how incredibly important this doctrine is, how necessary the Trinity is to all that we believe, but that we will be delighted by its importance. My prayer is that our thinking, our minds will be sharpened, that our hearts, our affections will be captured by the radical beauty of God and that our behaviour and lives are going to be shaped in light of who God really is. Uh, so strap in, it's going to be a bit of a ride these next couple of weeks. But again, before we really dive into it, it's worth thinking about this very important prologue. If we're going to spend these weeks thinking about the Trinity, thinking about who God really is, it's worth starting by asking, how do we know anything about God? How do we as limited, creaturely humans, hope to know anything about the God who made the whole universe, God who is transcendent, who is apart from creation, who is radically different from us. Uh, if you want to know something about a thing, you might like to make some observations, uh, conduct some experiments, but of course, God is not a something and because He is so different outside creation, you might struggle to run a little experiment on God. Our God is a personal God. He is relational. And to know a person, they need to open themselves up to you. They need to reveal themselves, right? You can't experiment your way into knowing my interests or my passions or, or my middle name. These things I need to reveal to you. 
And the beautiful truth, friends, is that God has indeed made himself known. The book of Hebrews, it starts with this wonderful declaration. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And now, it it would be really great for us to start by reading through all that God had revealed through the prophets in many and various ways, the whole Old Testament. Um, Apparently, that takes about 52 hours, and so I don't think we'll have time this morning. But um, let me take you quickly to one little moment, Uh, the moment that is known to ancient Israel and to modern Jews as the Shema. Uh, It is this devotional core of Israelite faith. Um, having given God, God having given His people the law, He makes this wonderful declaration about Himself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The core of Old Testament faith is this truth that God has shown of Himself. He is not many, He is not a member of a pantheon, He alone is God and He is one. But remember the very next verse of Hebrews chapter 1. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken by the prophets in the past, shown He is one, but He tells us even more through His Son, the Lord Jesus. And so if we want to know God, we need to hear Him as He speaks. As He speaks of His oneness and as He speaks through His Son. And so, it is to His Son, Jesus, and His Gospel that we're going to dive in today as we consider our Trinitarian Gospel. Now, as we come to the words of Scripture, I think we're going to find a, a picture of the Trinity that is quite different to the one we can often have in our heads. Uh, we often think of the Trinity as this kind of riddle that needs to be solved. Uh, theologian Robert Lethem, he says... To the vast majority of Protestants, the Trinity is little more than an abstruse mathematical conundrum. Is that how you feel, I wonder, as we come to this? But friends, the Bible paints a very different and a far richer picture. The Trinity is no arithmetic challenge to be solved, but is the very grounds of the gospel itself. The Trinity is both displayed in the gospel and is essential to the gospel. That's our two main thrusts for this morning. Without the Trinity, the gospel would be no gospel at all. And so to start, we're going to unpack a little bit of this gospel that we love and believe. Remembering first, what exactly is this gospel, this good news that we cherish and declare? Uh, Well, Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, uh, in Acts chapter 2, he explains the wondrous things that they're seeing before them, pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, and he concludes with a pithy summary, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ. And if you remember, just a few weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul there says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, this core gospel message, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. 
the gospel is this glorious historical truth about Jesus. Jesus died for sin, Jesus rose again, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And if that is what is central to all that we believe and know about God, about what He's done for us, then it's to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that we have to go to understand who God has shown Himself to be. And so, two key moments that I want us to turn our attention to as God shows us just who He is in the gospel, in the life, resurrection, life, death, resurrection, get them in the right order, of Jesus. And we're going to see, firstly, Trinity displayed in the gospel. Uh, early Christians used to say of anyone who doubted the Trinity, go to the Jordan and you will see it. So to the Jordan we're going to go, the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. There we read that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This moment, as Jesus is beginning His earthly ministry, He's starting to proclaim this gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, this essential moment for Jesus to let everyone know just who He is, we get this beautiful picture of God in His triune glory. The Father from heaven declares His love for His Son as the Spirit descends upon Jesus, this almost symbol of that love that's being declared. There's hints here that He is far more than a son by name, but perhaps is becoming a son, has always been, sorry, a son by nature. Uh, This picture is forming that it seems that Jesus in this moment is shown to us as unique in all of creation and space and time. Here is one who is like His Father one who shares in God's divine nature. J.C. Ryle, as he reflects on this moment, this cracker quote, I think, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Father, Son, Spirit on display there at the Jordan. Then at the other end of Jesus' ministry, in Matthew, we get this other kind of sneaky, rich insight into who God is. In Matthew 28, I'm sure you'll know it well, Jesus came to them after His resurrection and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here, as Jesus prepares to farewell His disciples, give them final instructions on what they are to do until He returns, these words that have governed the church worldwide for the last 2,000 years, He tells them to baptize in the name 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Singular name for the three persons he points to. And now these words have become fuel for so much unpacking and understanding and wrestling and engagement by theologians all throughout church history, uh, many of whom will meet this week if you come on Wednesday. Come for that, I'm really excited. Uh, but for now, notice this incredible union that Jesus seems to articulate that exists between Him, His Father and the Spirit. This triad of persons attached to the one name of God. And, and notice as well, this isn't something that the disciples that are here in this one kind of isolated moment of teaching. This is something they're to hear as the great sacrament of baptism is being instituted. These are words that Jesus intended His hearers, His followers, to, to say and to hear again and again and again as another sinner finds forgiveness and is symbolically washed in those waters of baptism. The Trinity is to be recalled and taught in the very first article of formal liturgy ever spoken for and by the Church. Singular name, three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. Hopefully from that we've seen with our eyes at the Jordan... And we've heard from the lips of the resurrected Jesus these hints and starting to formations of, of this concept that, that the one God who revealed Himself in the past is three. And as we look to Jesus, the one on whom the gospel centers, the one it proclaims, Trinity is coming into view. Now, at this point, you may remain a bit unconvinced. Um, I haven't really made any genuine argument for the divinity of Jesus or the personhood of the Spirit, these things that are often kind of wrestled with and, and questions that linger. And so we're going to do a really speedy zoom over some scriptural evidence for each of those before kind of a broader comment at the end that I think helps us think more richly about how we go about these things, understanding the Trinity. Uh, so speed run, you may not note all these down and that's okay. Um, firstly, uh, we'll see how does the New Testament talk about Jesus. Um, Jesus, He forgives sins in Mark 2. It's something that the teachers of the law rightly observe, only God can do. Uh, Jesus calms the storm in Mark 4. It's reminiscent of Psalm 107. As sailors cry out to the Lord and God stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus walks on water in Mark 6, where Job 9 tells us God alone stretches the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Uh, Jesus commands demons, He heals the sick and the lame and the blind all throughout the Gospels again and again, while we were promised in Isaiah 35, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then, as God comes to His people, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. In Matthew, Jesus is worshipped by the wise men in chapter 2, by the disciples in chapter 14, after walking on water, what only God can do, and chapter 28, after His resurrection. 
In John's Gospel, it's as clear as can be. In John 1, the eternal Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, is the one who takes on flesh in the man Jesus of Nazareth. And in case we missed it, John 28, 20, 28, Thomas meets the resurrected Jesus and there declares, my Lord and my God. And it's not just the Gospels that paint this picture of a divine Jesus. As we read through the epistles, uh, this lofty presentation of the man Jesus of Nazareth continues. Here's where it gets a bit denser. Christ is God, we read. Jesus is Lord, again and again. This Greek word, kurios, I hate using Greek, but it's important at this moment, I think. Um, It's the very title that was used to translate the Old Testament, Yahweh. God's old covenant name becomes kurios in Greek, which is the very word applied to Jesus all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Christ is the image of God. He is in the form of God. The fullness of God dwells in Him and He is in God. Uh, God and Christ get coupled together and the Lord Jesus Christ gets put alongside our God and Father. It's just this swathe of references as again and again and again we are pointed to this fact that the Son of God is indeed God the Son. And what about the Spirit? How do we know that He is indeed a He and not an It, not a a person and rather than some kind of force or willpower of God in creation? Well, He shows us again and again His personhood. He grieves over human sin. He persuades and convicts. He intercedes for us with groans that can't be uttered. He testifies, He cries, He speaks, He leads Jesus throughout His ministry, He tells Philip and Paul what they are to do, He has a mind and He does not lead us in a way that bypasses our own intellectual faculties. He can be blasphemed, which requires Him to have the same, to be identical with God. I've lost where, that's the one. And Peter places Him in parallel with God, lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. The Spirit, He is self-effacing, He draws attention to the Son and not Himself, and He creates the very confession that Christ is Lord. The Holy Spirit, again and again, does things that only a person, one with a will and ability to act, can do. He is absolutely a person just as much as the Son and the Father, and He is God as much as they are. Now, that's a speedy little fly-through of a whole lot of little references there on that screen. The point wasn't for you to be able to note them all down, but for us together to feel the weight of the scriptural testimony to the truth of Trinity. But having felt it a bit like that, um, it's actually not the isolated works of individual bits of scripture that really shape our hearts and minds to understand God. Um, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, he notes, um, our belief in the deity, in the, the godness of Christ, and by extension, personhood of the Trinity, our whole understanding of God, um, this, it does not rely on various incidents recorded in Gospels, but on the whole coherent evangelical structure of historical divine revelation given to us in the New Testament Scriptures. That is, it's the whole Bible together as we read it that shows us this. It's when we indwell 
the scriptures, when we meditate upon it, tune into it, penetrate inside it, absorb it into ourselves and find the very foundation of our life and thought changing under the creating, saving impact of Christ and are saved by Christ and personally reconciled to God in Christ, that then is when we believe in Him as Lord and God. As the scriptures just fill our lives and we fill ourselves with God's Word, spending time in it again and again, God keeps revealing for us richly and fully who He is. To make this, just for any of us though left that may be sceptical still, I, I, I suspect there's none of you, but this is a, this is a fun little guy to talk about. Um, you're still sceptical of the Trinity, maybe. You want a scholar to hang your hat on and say, this is the bloke who actually got the Bible right. Trinity's not real. I'll point you to the work of German biblical critic, Hermann Samuel Raymaris. He's got quite a large nose. Uh, in the 18th century, Raymaris said... That's quite small, but that's okay, I'm reading it. Um, I cannot avoid revealing a common error of Christians, since nowadays the doctrine of the Trinity of persons in God and the doctrine of the work of salvation through Jesus as the Son of God and God-man, these constitute the main articles and mysteries of the Christian faith. I shall specifically demonstrate they are not to be found in Jesus' discourse. Raymaris, he wanted us to go back to the true teachings of Jesus not to get distracted and caught up by this ridiculous Trinitarian nonsense. And so he wanted to explain Scripture with its true meaning. Uh, To him, he tells us, Son of God just means one loved by God. Uh, The Holy Spirit, it is the particular special talents and aptitudes of the human spirit that are holy because they're from God. At the baptism of Jesus, that voice from heaven, the Spirit coming down... It was nothing more than Jesus' extraordinary spirit or gifts being imparted to him by he- from heaven. When Raymaris reads the baptismal formula, he doesn't see Trinity, but uh, the name of one God whom Jesus respects so much to call him Father, and in the name of the man who is especially beloved by God, and the unique charisma that God gave that man. Friends, I hope you see the sheer absurdity of this way to read the Scriptures. It's ridiculous. And so, Californian professor Fred Sanders, as he concludes his kind of engagement with Ray Maris, he says this little cracker, those who sometimes wish the elements of Trinitarian theology were clearer and more numerous in the New Testament, which I think we can all feel sometimes, right? You know, you hear, the Bible doesn't say the word Trinity. Anyway, we may take courage from considering it from Ray Maris's anti-Trinitarian angle. How full of difficulties the text is for him. How much of it needs explaining away. How brimming it is with passages that might lead his reading back into the ruts of Trinitarian theology. It takes a lot of work to remove all traces of the Trinity from the New Testament. And so, friends, as we listen, the pages of Scripture scream to us the reality of the divine Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. And so, I want us to return to the Gospel and see just how essential the Trinity really is to the Gospel we know and love. The Gospel that is lived out and proclaimed in the person of Jesus that shaped the whole testimony of the New Testament. Uh, The Gospel that we experience in our own salvation when we meditate on the words of Scripture 
It's a gospel that Paul, he summarizes really richly for us with a deeply Trinitarian shape. Romans 1 that was read for us earlier. As Paul begins his letter, he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Paul kicks off this monumental work, what is, uh, by common consent, his masterpiece, this monolithic tome of an epistle that overwhelms us with its richness and density and depth, he begins with a clearly triune gospel. It is the gospel of God, the gospel of the Father. Uh, It is good news that He has held on to and now reveals. Good news that the Father set into motion. Good news that pours out of who He is. And it's good news about His Son. Not about us or about our world, not about philosophies or ideas or lifestyles. It's about a person, it's about Jesus God the Son, who took on flesh, who died and rose again. And in that resurrection, the gospel comes to us through the Spirit. The Spirit of holiness, who appoints Jesus to His everlasting throne as the promised Davidic King, of the, the Son of God, the one who is going to reign forever and ever. It's the Spirit who crowns Christ as Lord forever. Michael Reeves president of the Union School of Theology in Oxford, he says from these verses, the triune nature of God is the mould for the gospel. It took me ages to figure out how to spell mould appropriately, and I think, did I get it right? Maybe not. Every, you know what I mean, though. The, everything beautiful about the gospel is only so because God is triune. And He is so right. As we continue through Romans, in chapter 3.25, we read, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. God presented Christ. That is, the Father presented His own Son to atone for our sin. The Trinity is essential to the Gospel. Were God not triune, In this moment, he would be punishing some innocent third party for the sins of humanity. But God is triune. And so at the cross, we see God himself step into our place to take the punishment we deserve for our sins. When Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures, it was God himself bearing the weight of our transgressions. The true justice of the cross, where we experience atonement, forgiveness, being declared righteous. That justice is only possible because God is triune. But of course, the gospel leads to far more than justification and forgiveness, doesn't it? Because God is triune, He can actually do even more than forgive us. He can adopt us. He can welcome us into real and true fellowship with Himself. Again, Romans, this time chapter 8, read for us. Paul tells us, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. 
The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, but so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. We who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. The Spirit has brought about our adoption. God has welcomed us into His family that we can call Him Abba, Father. Galatians 4, Paul puts it like this, When the set time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba Father. The Father sent the Spirit of the Son so that we too could be sons. And and, and some translations, I think even the one read for us, will translate it children rather than sons, which I think is a bit of a shame because it disguises a bit of the delight of what's going on. Um, This isn't to exclude the women, the men in the room, we get to be the bride of Christ, the women, you get to be sons of God. Because, you see, in both of these instances, uh, David had a chuckle at that, thank you, Dave. Um, At both of these instances, Paul is slipping in this little Aramaic word, Abba, into a letter that's been written entirely in Greek, and it's very intentional, I think, what he's doing. Paul is hammering in this glorious point of sonship, because... It was Jesus, God, the Son in the flesh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who first cried out, Abba, oh, that one, Abba, Father, in Mark 14. As Paul uses that same word, he's showing us that that very relationship which the Son had with His Father by nature, we are invited into to share in truly and deeply and richly by grace. We are adopted into the very life of the triune God Himself. By that same triune God's work of redemption upon the cross, in the person of the Son, the man Jesus. Everything that is true of the Son in His relationship to His Heavenly Father, becomes true for us, as we are adopted as sons and relate to our Heavenly Father. And this is absolutely vital to how we understand the gospel and its effects for us, right? If God were a simple monad, a single person God, then true fellowship, true adoption, true sonship like this could never happen. He would always be at a distance from us. He would, we would be nothing more than, than slaves or hirelings, servants created to fulfill some need in a lonely God. And were that true, if, if the goal of salvation was just approval, just right service, then how's that going to be achieved? Well, that's achieved by our efforts, by our, our strivings as we endeavor to just be a bit better and to appease our divine ruler just a bit more. But salvation by our Trinitarian gospel is so much sweeter than that. It results in true fellowship, in true sonship. Sonship that can't be won, that can't be earned. Adoption is not some great achievement of the orphan uh, through their behavior or talent or merit. No, adoption is a gift from a father, a welcoming embrace of love that turns a lost child into a loved son. 
It is only because God is triune that our salvation can be this richly by grace alone. Uh, British theologian Gerald Bray talks of adoption like this, and, and he shows us how this Trinitarian reality of adoption leads to our growth in godliness. He says, the work of the Holy Spirit is to remake us in the image of Christ so that we might enjoy the benefits of Christ's relationship to the Father, that adoption as sons. The Spirit is remaking us in the image of Christ's person that we too may be sons of God by adoption. The Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus. And what is it like exactly to be in the image of Christ? What is it that the Spirit is making us like? What is it most about us that makes us like the Son, that makes us godly? Well, it is as we, by the Spirit, share in the Son's delight in the Father. That's what it's like to be godly. John 14, 31, Jesus says, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. That's what it looks like to be a son, to be conformed by the Spirit into the image of Christ, what it looks like to be like God in this way, it is to love the Father and do as He commands. And in turn, we might like to ask, sons are like their dads, in what way are we to be like the Father? John three thirty-five: the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into His hands. To be like our Father is to love the Lord Jesus. When we love Jesus, we're reflecting what is most characteristic of our Heavenly Father, His delight in His own eternal Son. Puritan John Owen puts it like this, another cracker, I think, nothing makes us so like God as our love for Jesus Christ. We are most like God when we love the Son as He does. And it is the Spirit who makes us, like the Father, to love the Son. And again, it's the Spirit who gives us the mind of Christ that we may love the Father. Uh, To quote Reeves once more, the heart of our transformation into the likeness of the Son is our sharing in His deep delight in the Father. In our love and enjoyment of the Son, we are being like the Father, and in our love and enjoyment of the Father, we are being like the Son. That is the happy life the Spirit calls us into. That is the happy life that our triune gospel calls us to and enables. Brothers and sisters, in the gospel, we get this great insight into the life of God Himself. As He declares His love for the Son and demonstrates it by the Spirit at the Jordan, as Jesus instructs His disciples to baptize in the single name of Father, Son and Spirit, as the gospel of the Father concerning the Son according to the Spirit enables our union with the Son by the Spirit that we may delight in the Father. As the Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, adopts us to experience for ourselves what is true for the Son by His nature. In the gospel we see the Trinity, displayed and essential. And we're invited to participate in the very life of God Himself, to delight in the Father as the Son does, to delight in the Son as the Father does, 
all by the unifying, transforming work of the Spirit sent into our hearts that we may cry out, Abba, Father. The Trinity is not some dusty piece of doctrine for theologians to argue about in their ivory towers. The Trinity has rich relevance to our life day by day. It is central to our gospel, central to our salvation, central to our lives each and every moment of each and every day. And so may these Trinitarian truths form a deep foundation for us over these next few weeks, that we may delight all the more in the God who made us, loves us, saves us, adopts us, and cherishes us, not just as children, but as sons. What a rich joy it is to know, to believe, to be saved by our Trinitarian gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for what you have spoken to us by your Son, that you have shown yourself um, to be one of Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And thank you that by your Spirit you adopt us as sons, that we may enjoy the love that you have lavished on your Son for eternity, we now get to experience too. Father, help us to delight in you, in your Son, and in your Spirit more and more each day for our good and for your glory. Amen.